Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We fool ourselves about lots of things. By and large, we think we're smarter, more civic-minded, and fairer than we really are. The good part about that, I guess, is that we aspire to be smart and civic-minded and fair. The bad part is that we can keep our real selves hidden behind this sort of beautiful facade because we know what's acceptable to show to people and what isn't. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is an economist who has spent years studying our real selves, that somewhat less visible core that nevertheless is an important part of who we are. Seth is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times, and he's also author of the new book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And I should mention before we get into this that there will be some pretty frank discussion about both race and sex. So on that note... Seth, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Kara. So how did you get started thinking search engines, like Google searches mostly, that's the key, that, that what people put in that search box really reveals a lot about um, who they are, even like the person that they are that they keep hidden. Well, about five years ago, I was doing research when Barack Obama was president on uh, the effects that race had in the 2000. Uh, eight election, whether a lot of people did not support Obama because he was black. And a lot of the evidence from surveys said that this was a tiny factor. Very, very few people uh, cared that Obama was black. Mm. We were living in a post-racial society, if people remember that that, that time period. Uh, and I uh, found this new data from Google, and I was basically just shocked at what I saw, the uh, amount of racist searches that people made. And I found that basically these correlate almost perfectly with parts of the country where Obama did worse than other Democratic mm. uh, candidates. So it seemed like uh, people were saying one thing and uh, doing something totally different. And online uh, seemed to be the way to, to find this truth. Um, when you say a racist search, what is a racist search? Yeah, so it's the percent of Google searches that include the racist uh, N-word. But a lot of people make searches for like N-word jokes and uh, I hate n-word uh, mm. millions of these searches every year mm. and you get a, to a like a real clear map of when you see where these searches are most frequent you get a striking map of uh, racial animus in the united states and it's a very different map uh, from the one that i would have guessed or the one that surveys told us mm. uh, i think most people think that racism is predominantly an issue in the south that the big divide is north versus south but actually uh, the big racist divide today in the united states is not north versus south it's east versus west Racism huh. is very high in many parts of Northeast, in upstate New York, and in industrial Michigan, and western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio. Uh, it's about as high there as anywhere. So r really, there are many parts of Northern America that also have these attitudes. But you don't see as many searches with the N-word in Utah or in California. Yeah, exactly. Really? Pretty much west of the Mississippi, it drops pretty substantially. You also say um, that when you were looking at the Obama election, and as you said, you know, we, in the media, you know, I remember 2008 so well, and, and obviously into the beginning of 2009, because that was the inauguration, people were talking about this idea of like, how we entered a post-racial America. Um, but you say that while that was happening in full view, right, on, on TV and stuff, the white nationalist organization Stormfront had this surge in popularity after Obama was elected. Explain that and like what you saw in the data there. Yeah, so Stormfront is a site that I had never actually heard of Stormfront. I found Stormfront because I was, well, people make up embarrassing Google searches. One of the embarrassing Google searches I make is for my own name a lot. And I was searching for my own name and I found that uh, this website Stormfront was discussing my work. 
uh, and I had no idea what um, it was, but it was a, a white nationalist site. They were they keep track of Jewish writers in the media. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of became interested in and started studying who joined this site, when people joined this site. So it's another window into hate. Uh, it used to be that hate groups were offline and we didn't really know very much about them. They had these secretive meetings. Uh, the KKK had secretive meetings in back rooms and we really didn't know who joined them, why people joined them. But now uh, hate is moving online to sites like Stormfront, and we're able to analyze the data and learn a lot more about what causes people to join such a site. And one of the things that led to a big surge in this in membership was uh, the election of Obama. Hmm. You also talk about, in thinking about race, you also talk about this moment in um, 2015, right after uh, the shootings in San Bernardino. Where President Obama gives a speech and he says, you know, we're going to do everything we can to fight back against terrorism. But it's really important uh, to remember that Muslim Americans are patriots, that Muslims around the world are very often the people who are the victims of terrorism. Explain the effect of that speech, as far as you can tell from essentially Google searches. Yeah, so there's a a corner of Google searches that is really, really, really nasty, kind of extreme searches. People make searches such as kill Muslims. And we've shown that these searches actually predict hate crimes. So when these searches are high, there are going to be more uh, attacks at mosques or beating up of Muslim Americans. So these are kind of crazy people, right? These are not necessarily the most sane members of society, people who are searching uh, something like kill Muslims. But they're not a part of society that we've traditionally studied very much. They don't go into uh, Harvard psychology labs to be studied. Uh, They're not really uh, so easy to track. But because of Google searches, we can actually see basically minute by minute uh, what causes people to have these violent thoughts to the extent that they make these uh, crazy searches on Google. And one of the things I did study was this speech that Obama made after the San Bernardino attack. What I found, I was working with Evan Soltas then at Princeton University, and what we found is that Obama gave this speech that was very, very well received. He talked about uh, how it's the responsibility of Americans to reject hate and to support freedom instead of fear and to reject uh, religious tests for allowing uh, people into this country. And it was a very well-received speech. Uh, The New York Times loved it. The Los Angeles Times loved it. Pretty much everybody gave it rave reviews. Uh, But we found by actually tracking these searches that basically every time Obama made one of these comments, there was a huge explosion in these nasty searches such as kill Muslims or I hate Muslims or Muslims Mm. are evil or die Muslims or, or, or a lot of these crazy searches, which really suggests that sometimes rhetoric that we think is doing well and think is doing the job uh, actually backfires. We did notice one line in that speech. Uh, Obama talked about how Muslim Americans are athletes and uh, men and women who die in uniform protecting this country. And right after that line, there was a, a big surge in searches for Muslim athletes and Muslim soldiers. So people became curious who are these people? And then hmm. they started tweeting about how Shaquille O'Neal was uh, a Muslim athlete. They hadn't known that before. So we suggested that maybe uh, instead of lecturing people uh, to make them less angry, which maybe will just backfire, you might want to provoke people's curiosity and change how they think about a group. Hmm. Uh, after we wrote that article, you know, it was in the New York Times. It got a lot of attention. I think perhaps somebody in, in the Obama White House read our article because uh, a few weeks later, he gave another speech at a, a Baltimore mosque. And again, that this was uh, nationally televised, got a lot of attention. Uh, but this time, Obama stopped with the lectures and the talk of responsibility and instead uh, really doubled down 
or quadrupled down on on uh, the the curiosity part. So he talked about how Muslim Americans built skyscrapers in Chicago and other uh, mm. teachers and firefighters and Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the Koran. And mm. uh, after he made this speech, uh, this, the really nasty searches, kill Muslims, I hate Muslims, Muslims are evil, they went down after this speech. So it did seem this speech was a lot more uh, successful. And I think that really shows the power of uh, this data where uh, we could actually, you know, how to calm an angry mob is not right. necessarily something that has been researched very frequently. Right, right, right. We haven't had minute by minute uh, searches on people who desire killing a group of, of human beings. We now do have that data and can actually turn it into a, something like a science, which is pretty remarkable. How accurate or how exact can you be with this data? I think uh, there's definitely... There are definitely limits. You know, I think you can see kind of broad patterns. Like I think it's meaningful if searches are twice as high in one place as they, as they are in another or if searches have uh, risen, you know, 80 percent in the last uh, you know, year or something. Then that would probably be a meaningful pattern if they've gone up 1 percent or 2 percent or they're, uh, you know, 1 percent higher here. Then that, then that might be uh, something you'd view with more caution. Uh, but I think some of the new data sources get unfairly maligned uh, as if the existing data sources are perfect, and they're clearly not, right? Uh, so like, there are lots of holes in uh, a lot of the traditional methodologies that we've been using uh, and imperfections. So uh, I don't know that there's more noise uh, in these data sources than there have been in previous data sources. And I think uh, over time, we'll probably get better at, at, at learning different ways to weight the data and, mm. and take out even more of that noise. This is Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, author of the book, Everybody Lies. He's also a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. So I want to shift gears quite a lot here, but still to something that people are not that honest about. And it's sex. People lie all the time about it. You found that out. And I want you to walk us through this exploration you did a little bit, because the numbers are fascinating. You look at condom sales, like actual condom sales is not web searches at all. This is actual sales. And you notice that the the answers to surveys just completely do not match up with like the hard numbers in terms of what has been sold. So give me a sense of like what you found and what people are being honest and dishonest about. Yeah. So if you ask uh, Amer the General Social Survey, this massive academics uh, research operation, asks Americans, how much sex do you have and how frequently do you use a condom? And uh, if you do the math based on those answers, then American men say they use 1.6 billion condoms in heterosexual sex every year. American women say they use 1.1 billion condoms in heterosexual sex every year. Uh, of course, those numbers by definition <laughs> have to be the same. So you kind of already know that that, that somebody's lying, right? Because uh, there's there are only so many heterosexual sexual encounters that used a condom in a given year. Uh, so who's telling the truth? Uh, neither data uh, provided to me by Nielsen says that only 600 million condoms are sold every year. So basically everybody's uh, lying about sex. So you've got 1.6 billion, men are saying 1.6 billion, women are saying 1.1 billion, but really the sales are only 600 million. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And some of those by gay men and some of them thrown out. So probably a lot even fewer are actually mm. used in, in sex. Now, this, of course, does not mean that uh, people are lying about how much sex they have. They may just be lying about how frequently they use a condom. Uh, but if you actually look at how frequently people say that they have unprotected sex, uh, basically, if people are having as much unprotected sex as they had, uh, if you do the math, there'd be a lot more pregnancies in the United States. So I think the overall evidence is that people are just lying about how much sex they're having protected or unprotected. In the United States today, there's a huge uh, pressure to maybe uh, make it seem like you're having more sex than you actually are having. Hmm. 
Can you tell why, like from searches, why it might be that people are not having as much sex as they say they are? Um, I wonder if there are clues as to why these numbers like don't match up. Well, I think uh, one thing that is very striking in Google searches, and this may play some role in lack of sex, is a tremendous amount of uh, bodily insecurity around sex. Hmm. Uh, so I talk about that a lot in the book, that uh, men make, uh, I think, more searches about their uh, their penis than any other body part, basically concerned that it's that it's that it's small and how they can make it bigger. Hmm. And another one, I, I help people make weird searches into Google. The most common searches men make about their uh, genital organ is how big is my penis, which also like it doesn't make sense that you're asking Google that, right? <laughs> yeah, probably not unless they know way more than we think. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, people make really weird searches on Google. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to call my book that, but my publisher said that 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 would, that would be a tough sell. Like, mm. how big is my penis? What Google searches reveal about human nature? It's a good title. It's a good title. But I can see why maybe I don't know bookstores wouldn't want to d- display it or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and then women have their own bodily insecurities hmm. around uh, you know all all different areas of their body. So I think hmm. like those numbers are are staggering the amount of searches people make. Hmm. Uh, worried about things. So I think when you have that level of anxiety, it probably uh, does make sense that there's not that much sex going on. Right. uh, I think it's hard to have sex when you're that insecure about your body. So when you talked about um, Obama's San Bernardino speech, um, you talked about ways in which this data can be used to maybe change presidential speeches so that people actually focus on the things that the president wants them to focus on rather than have this unintended sort of backlash kind of reaction. Are there other ways, specific ways that you can think of to use this data to help improve the world? There's one example that's a little silly, but I think it's actually really, really important. When I talked about bodily insecurities, uh, I talked about how men are obsessed with the size of their genitals, which is not so surprising. Uh, But there was a surprise that was among the biggest concerns that women have uh, that I definitely did not know about, uh, which was women make a lot of searches uh, concerned about vaginal odor. When I first did this research, I kind of wrote it about it as kind of a joke. It kind of made me chuckle. It made other people chuckle. But then I got a lot of uh, emails from people in sexual education, and they're like, is there a way we can incorporate this data? If you actually look at these searches, a lot of these searches are from like 13, 14-year-old, 15-year-old young girls Hmm. who literally think their lives are over over this issue. They're paranoid. They're really that this is like the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being. And this isn't really talked about necessarily in sex ed because people didn't really know uh, how widespread this paranoia is. So I've been talking to people in sex ed about how can we incorporate some of this research uh, into sexual education and maybe reduce the paranoia among young girls. So that's like the reason I like this example uh, is because it's this area that is so embarrassing that it's not really talked about and we didn't know about it. But by aggregating everyone's data on Google searches where they are honest, we learn about this kind of widespread insecurity that Hmm. previously uh, we didn't really know about and can uh, maybe lower this insecurity. What did studying all this stuff, I mean, it could be about sex or it could not be, but what did this teach you about common wisdom and the kind of things that I mean, you talk about your grandmother, but the kind of wisdom that, like, grandmothers dispense or, you know, people who, you know, just a trusted friend would dispense, you know, sort of this conventional wisdom that people have accumulated over a lifetime of seeing relationships or seeing politics or whatever it is. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I talk a little bit about my grandma. I tried to make the hero of my story because I said she's kind of the original <laughs> big big data. Uh, you know, originally, I think before... 
uh, the phrase big data even existed. We, we relied a lot, a lot on the elderly because they had seen so much. Uh, so they were able to kind of look at, at patterns in the same way that now a data scientist at Google or Facebook does right. uh, and make sense of them. Uh, but I do think that just in general, people are fairly off in how they think the world works just because of cognitive biases we have as well as people lying to us. So we generally get an inaccurate view of the world when we uh, listen to what people uh, tell us. Hmm. Just because it, it, they've only seen so much. They've only seen so much. And a lot of people are people tend to exaggerate the value of their own stories. And mm-hmm. uh, I, t- I talk about like what makes a relationship wor- work. And a lot of people think that you want to have a common group of friends so that you're kind of always hanging around the same people and then you don't have to go your separate ways. Uh, but actually data from Facebook shows that makes a relationship not work. Uh, if you're hanging around with the same group of friends, you're more likely to break up. Hmm. You're more likely to stay together if you have separate circles of friends. Hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of things just kind of over and over again where the intuition or the traditional advice that uh, people have told us is wrong. And I think there is so much uh, dishonesty. I think I just view the world totally differently after looking at this data than I did beforehand. Uh, I, I talk a little bit about anxiety in the in the, in the the book. And I'm from the, uh, New Jersey, like New York area. And I've always kind of like made jokes about being very neurotic and how anxious I am. And <laughs> you model yourself on, on like Woody Allen and Larry David, right. and all those, like, neurotic Jews. And you're like, oh, that, you know, that's me. I'll make the same jokes. And people always laughed and like, oh, yes, that's so anxious. But like when you actually look at the data and a, a lot of the data that I've been looking at, particularly Google searches, like New York City and Jewish people do not seem to have particularly high levels of anxiety. Like there's much more. <laughs> There's much more anxiety in, like, Kentucky and upstate New York. I think there are more Woody Allens in Kentucky than in New York City. They just don't make movies about their, their neuroses. So that kind of just totally blew my mind mm. of how I see the world. And now I'm just like, oh, everybody's anxious. Just some people are more, like, for cultural reasons, make a bigger deal out of it and, and talk about it more. But I, th- I, don't, I don't really think uh, there's an unusual level of anxiety among the circle I hang out with. It's mostly New York Jews. <laughs> That's interesting. There's an untapped movie-making market in Kentucky is what you're saying. Well, yeah, I, I, that, that might be it. I think it's just I think I, I think just in general, like there's so much of the world is just like our view is just biased by right. what people say. Right. Uh, and what's socially acceptable. At some point, it became acceptable for New York Jews to talk about how anxious and neurotic they were. That became funny. So mm-hmm. everybody started talking about it where it never really became uh, socially acceptable for people in Kentucky to talk about this. So they didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then everyone just assumed, oh, there's all this anxiety among, you know, urban intellectuals, which I don't think now I think is just not true at all. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times and author of Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Seth, thank you so much. It's really interesting. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Kara. Searching, 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 searching. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, analyzing the genetic weaknesses of more than 25,000 tumors to craft precision treatments for cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash BeatCancer. In the 1960s, in America, there was a psychological test that was so popular it was given about a million times a year. The idea of the test was that it could help understand what sort of person you were. 20 years earlier, though, when it was somewhat less well-known, the test, which is named after its founder, Herman Rorschach, was administered to some of the world's most high-profile subjects, the Nazi high command, who by then had been put in prison. And the question that everyone wanted to know 
is pretty simple. What is the Nazi personality? What are the special characteristics of it? Damien Searles is the author of The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. He writes about the unique role of Rorschach the man, who is both an artist and a psychiatrist, and the test he created, which has been changing the world for a century now. Searle says that in the 1940s, the prison psychiatrist at Nuremberg decided this was the test to give. What it revealed seemed crazy. It was a challenge to what people believed about good and evil. What the Rorschach found was nothing. In other words, there was a range of variations. Some of the Nazis were violent psychopaths, and some of them were very well-adjusted, you know, bureaucrats. And there was the same sort of range that there would be anywhere else. And this freaked them out. They didn't expect this. They expected... This freaked out the scientists. Exactly, because here's the world's best technique, and here's the, like, world's most extreme set of people, and it's not finding anything. So... One of them, the psychiatrist, said, well, you know, this shows that criminals aren't crazy. They're just bad people or in a bad context or however you want to interpret it. There's not a kind of special psychology of being a Nazi, of being a bad person. The other one couldn't accept this. And massage the Rorschach results to make it seem like it showed how, you know, awful they all were. He published articles later called things like the mentality of SS murderous robots. So, you know, he was very invested in this mid-century idea that, you know, there is a personality type that could do these sorts of things. But the actual test results sort of didn't confirm what the scientists were expecting. And they were sort of buried. Um, There was going to be a big conference publicizing the results, and every single leading Rorschach scientist in the world suddenly had an appointment that day and couldn't (laughs) quite make it. and, And it didn't happen because I think none of them could really believe what they were seeing. It was only after Milgram and Hannah Arendt that scientists went back and were able to really analyze the results for what they were. And now I just want to touch on that point again of like that they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And in your view, like what they were seeing, what they didn't want to see um, was that these were kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, normal people who had done terrible things, not like a special breed of terrible people. Exactly. You know, there were some qualities that they shared. They did tend to sort of be a bit more adaptable in following instructions than the norm. But really, their differences were much more significant than their similarities. The psychiatrist even said, you know, it's the same range of variation as there would be in your local PTA meeting. And this was something that was just not what the world was ready to hear in the 40s. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how Herman Rorschach came up with this test. Um, As I noted, he was an artist. He was a psychiatrist. um, And actually, his father was an artist. How did he come up with these inkblots? And then, like, how did he fit them into the science and the psychology uh, that was understood at the time? Yeah, that's the reason that my book, 
talks about his life as well as talking about the history of the test because it really was this kind of artistic creation as well as a scientific advance or method. So Hermann Rorschach was born in 1884. He was Swiss-German. Both his parents died young, and so he decided to become a doctor. And then inspired by sort of Tolstoy and the Russians, he decided to become a doctor of the soul, not, you know, a radiologist or bone setter or something. But he decided to become a psychiatrist. The thing is that he was a visual person. As you said, his dad was a, a drawing teacher. He was a lifelong keeper of sketchbooks. He kept visual diaries of his kids. He took photographs of the landscape and also of his patients that he organized by diagnosis as a sort of way of understanding them better. And so even in some kind of amazing personal details, you know, there's a recorded evidence that in college he used to go to the art museum with his friends and afterwards he'd ask all his different friends what they thought of a given painting, stuff like that. Hmm. So he really had this deep sense that how you see is very characteristic of who you are. And Herman Rorschach worked in these big, you know, basically state hospitals with lots of very seriously psychotic people, not the kind of people who can come sit on your couch for an hour five days a week. And so he wanted to try and connect with them in other ways. And even if they weren't talkative or even, you know, responsive, he would try to give them drawing supplies or do games with them or things like that. And so he knew that there were visual approaches you could take to people. Uh, in other words, ways to ways to connect with them other than talking with them. Hmm. There have certainly been times when the Rorschach test was super popular and it was heavily depended upon for all sorts of things. Do you think that Herman Rorschach would have liked that? Uh, or do you think he would have worried about it? It's certainly true in mid-century that it was used in this way that was over the top in terms of people thinking that it was some sort of like truth serum, magic mind reading technique. And any real world decisions that were based on that are obviously flawed and that's not how it should have been used. You know, there is a letter that Herman Rorschach wrote uh, to a colleague, kind of a frenemy who was working with him <laughs> as he was developing the test. And he said, you know, gold mine because I'm plugged into the German educational system and this can be used like throughout the system for basically aptitude testing. And Herman Rorschach wrote this letter and said, hold on, slow down. You know, when I think about someone whose lifelong dream has been to go to university and they're prevented from doing it because of this test, I feel like I can't breathe. Hmm. Maybe it could work for some kind of aptitude testing. But first, you need to do a lot of statistics and get big sample sizes and really check everything. And I actually think, Rorschach said, that it will be better for, you know, what kind of lawyer should you be? Should you mm -hmm. be a high-pressure trial attorney or like a backroom introverted tax lawyer? You know, it probably won't be good for you should or shouldn't get into law school. So he personally, I mean, this is one of his kind of winning qualities. Like he was very sensitive to possible misuse and aware that it absolutely shouldn't be used without proper controls in any kind of real world situations. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Damien Searles, author of the book, The Inkblots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and the Power of Seeing. Can you talk a little bit about the moment when the Rorschach test became big in the U.S.? It was this moment where bigger institutions wanted to categorize people. So can you talk a little bit about like what happened, how did it take off, and, and what that moment felt like? So the Rorschach first came to America a couple years after Rorschach died. Uh, it was first given in Chicago, already in the mid-20s. And it, there was a kind of trickle of interest in psychology, but the real crux came with World War II. Because with World War II, you have a draft, and so every able-bodied man in America is being given medical tests and also psychological tests. And the results shocked people. I mean, rural health in America was very poor. There was a lot of, you know, deformity and missing teeth and weakness and bad hygiene and bad food supplies and malnutrition and all this kind of stuff. It was very shocking. And then psychologically, too, 12 percent of the people were found psychologically unfit to serve in the army. And, you know, maybe some of them were faking it, but most of them weren't. And this blew the minds of people in the army in the government, in the medical establishment. Mental illness was not, it turned out, just, you know, a few people in asylums. It was something that was really affecting a massive part of the country. And so, partly by an accident of history, the Rorschach was sort of ready to step up as a psychological test just when you suddenly had all this public and government pressure to step up psychology. And so in any history of, of psychiatry and psychology in America, it's World War II that's this pivotal moment because you have mass application of psychological tests and you suddenly realize that there's this mass need for psychology. And do you feel ever like, I mean, maybe this has always been true and, and we tend to think about our own times um, as sort of the center of our lives. But this right. <laughs> moment seems like such a Rorschach test where, I mean, people can look at a reality that I guess is objective and you've got two people, I mean, especially across the political divide, people just see it, I mean, radically differently. And they're seeing the same person or the same people take the same actions, right. but their interpretation, wow, could not be further apart. No, it certainly seems to be a real high point or low point of that kind of diversity of reaction to things. But, you know, this is how I end my book. The last chapter is called The Rorschach Test is Not a Rorschach Test. And what I mean by that kind of as a joke is that the real Rorschach test is not this relativist cliche thing where anything can mean anything and nothing matters and all facts are alternative facts. Mm. You know, the real ink blots have objective visual properties. The real test actually works or doesn't work to measure this or that, and you can prove it. So in a way, the real Rorschach test is kind of also an image that gets us past this metaphorical test. Because think about it. If, if you're on a couch and you tell someone your dream, then they don't have any independent access to that. You know, they can only sort of listen to you and interact with you. But if someone says, okay, what is this ink blot? And you say it, then they can take the same ink blot and look at it themselves. And there's this literal piece of visual common ground. You actually 
are both looking at the same thing. And there's millions of data points over the last century about how other people have seen the same thing. So you can really actually get at, you know, is this a standard or non-standard way of looking at it? What does it correlate with? Things like that. So the fact that it's visual is kind of a nice image for the fact that even if we do have different perspectives on reality, we are ultimately looking at the same thing. Damien Searles is the author of The Inkblots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. Damien, thank you so much. Thank you. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. I went to my high school reunion a little over a year ago, and I had kind of a weird experience beyond the fact that I was at my high school reunion. But when we grabbed sandwiches and cookies and sat down to eat, I'm pretty sure we all organized ourselves in exactly the same way that we had in high school. I noticed it in the moment, and I didn't think a whole lot about it afterwards. In high school, though, where people chose to sit and whether they sat with me, that felt like it really mattered. What I didn't know then is that the teenage brain works a lot differently than the adult brain. It perceives slates differently, and it places more importance on them. It also deals with sleep and alcohol and marijuana differently. Frances Jensen is the chair of the neurology department at the University of Pennsylvania. And as her children became teenagers, she thought, wow, something is happening here. So she dove into the literature on how their brains were changing. And what she found, which she put into a book called The Teenage Brain, surprised her. For one thing, teenage brains are not adult brains with fewer miles on them. They are brains that are still cooking. And they're not quite done yet. So actually, the front of your brain gets fully connected, fully hooked up for like millisecond to millisecond signaling, not until the mid to late 20s. It's it's there and it's partially connected, but the final process of making it, you know, fast access doesn't happen till later. So teenage adolescent time is when is a time when you don't have full access of your frontal lobe, but unfor- well, fortunately or unfortunately, you've got full access of your emotional areas of your brain. And we do see that teenagers have greater challenges um, controlling their impulses, controlling emotional lability, if you will, and are very, very susceptible to peer pressure, which is, of course, giving them emotional, you know, giving an emotional cue to them without that frontal lobe to say, bad idea, probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't jump off that cliff, shouldn't do this. You don't have it. And so this is a a relative weakness they have, but it also is what builds them to be novelty-seeking, right? Nature probably made it that way. So that's that helps explain. We've, I've used this analogy before just to, just to close out on this, is that people often say a teenage brain is like a Ferrari um, because of their fast synapses with weak brakes because of the lack of connection. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about addiction and the teenage brain. Do you think that a 15-year-old is more likely to get addicted to something than a 35-year-old? Are they just more likely uh, to try something than a 35-year-old? Oh, that is a great 
question. And I will say it's both. So it turns out, um, and this is a fact that we're trying to really get out there into the mainstream. When you learn something through practice, repeated, you're repeatedly using a pathway to in your brain to do whatever, a tennis you know, swing or learn a vocabulary lesson. And the more you use it, the stronger that the synapse, the bigger the synapse is going to be. The synapse is in that pathway. So, and, and this is called plasticity. This is meaning it's plastic, it's moldable by experience and use. So it's it's happening, the more you use it, the stronger uh, a pathway gets. And in fact, that's memory, right? I mean, that's how we build skills and that's how we keep memories. Uh, and interestingly, that process called plasticity at the synapse it turns out that addiction is simply another form of learning. It's just happening in a different part of your brain, the addiction circuits, the reward systems. So repeated exposure to a drug, the brain is adapting. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to be responding to that all the time, so I'm going to build a bigger signal for that. And it, it turns out the synapses are being built in the I want it, I want it, I want it circuit. Um, so and that's what addiction is. So teenagers actually can more powerfully and more rapidly build synapses in any circuit than adults later in life. Hence, there's nothing different except it happens to be the reward system and the areas of the brain that actually control addiction are unfortunately morphing too efficiently to that drug, and hence teenagers can be, de- can be addicted faster, harder, longer, stronger than adults. And, and rehab centers are seeing this. Let me ask you about uh, two drugs or two substances that... I think many teenagers don't think are are very addictive, um, alcohol and marijuana, right? Not hard drugs, uh, but do they have the same kinds of effects? Or are they very different from what you've just described in terms of teenagers falling a lot harder for them maybe than somebody 20 years older? Uh, yes. So their brain is changing. Normal brains are still changing every day during this window. So alcohol, um, not only can alcohol definitely gets into that addiction circuit and people can get addicted faster, the everyday use of alcohol, so most drugs work at synapses. And I've just told you that teenagers have more synapses than adults. So they are going to actually be feeling a greater effect for a given amount of alcohol than an adult. It's going to be affecting more real estate in the teenage brain than in the adult. And it turns out that binge drinking, for instance, can actually derail some of your brain development and um, because it is having such a more powerful effect. And that's why people, there's a lot of conversation about the problem with binge drinking because it's such a a potent, um, you know, has such a potent effect on the teenage brain. Are you saying that, like, it changes your ability to learn, it changes your IQ? I mean, can it be that powerful? Well, um, indeed, uh, that's exactly what's seen. So just moving over to cannabis, to marijuana, that is actually what has recent reports have been showing for the last five, maybe six years now, multiple reports coming out of human and animal experiments and and human observation, is that repeated exposure to cannabis repeatedly, and I'm saying chronic daily exposure, which is something that becomes more of even more concern as it has become, it is legalized for recreational use in many states. So it's just around more, even though it's not legal for somebody under 21, Mm -hmm. it's still in around and probably easily accessible. So we worry about chronic daily exposure for this, exactly the reason I was talking about. You're changing the brain on a daily basis. And it turns out that this 
powerful effect of the teenage brain being able to learn more, a lot of literature is now showing that IQ can change in your teen years, which mm. is a, it's an amazing fact that people didn't recognize, um, which is wonderful because that means you can actually increase your IQ. But it also means that you can decrease your IQ because right. it's actually a function of how your synapses are being built. And it turns out cannabis appears to, when it's a chronic daily exposure in this one window in life, compared to a similar exposure later in life, it will actually drop your IQ. It decreases your verbal IQ, actually, more than anything, lifelong permanently. And that has been shown in numerous studies. So, so now you're talking about using marijuana like every day. I wonder if there have been studies done um, that look at more periodic use, because I mm-hmm. would guess that a lot of teenagers fall on that side of the line where once a week or a few times a month they're, they're using pot, not, not like every day. Right. So what we've learned about that is obviously everybody knows that pot has an effect on your brain. We wouldn't be taking it if there wasn't some effect. People perceive uh, that it decreases their anxiety level, but it also can affect memory and sort of level of alertness, you know, depending upon how much you've smoked. Um, It turns out that when we look at like how um, learning works, how we build new synapses or, or strengthen synapses that are already there as we use them, it turns out that cannabis on episodic basis, it's going to be affecting the way you remember something when Mm. you are under the influence. We see that um, uh, levels of cannabis stay higher in the teenage brain and in animal experiments have shown this as well, um, when it might be out of your system, but it's hanging around impairing future learning for up to three to four days following an episode of getting high. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Frances Jensen, a professor of neurology and the chair of the department at University of Pennsylvania. She's also author of The Teenage Brain. I wonder, when you were looking into the literature about teenagers and how their brains work, and, you know, you were raising teenagers yourself, what were other things that really surprised you and you didn't realize in in thinking about how brains work in that uh, period of time when, when kids are sort of just coming into their own? Sure. Uh, well, a couple of things. One is is trying to explain their rather um, odd sleep habits. <laughs> and it turns out that there's definitely neurobiology to explain why their sleep cycle is not like it will be later when they're adults. And it turns out that uh, there's biology behind why they're, they seem to be falling asleep several hours later than adults. We all put out something called melatonin, which kind of st- kickstarts the process of going to sleep in our brains. And um, that in adults, it's usually coming out probably 8.45 or 9 o'clock in the evening. Well, um, nature has built their brains uh, such that in this developmental window, they don't release it till two or three hours later. So they're going to sleep more like midnight. And then they need their full night's sleep. So to get their nine plus hours of sleep, that takes them way past 6 or 7 a.m. And that's an issue, obviously, because yeah. we have a lot of sleep-deprived, you know, adolescents around. Well, it is tricky. I, I just have to say it's tricky because we've constructed our school days so that that's a right. lot of kids have to be at school at 8, sometimes earlier if, you know, sometimes there'll be like an early band tra- practice, an early swim practice or that kind of thing. I mean, you know, kids are getting up at the crack of dawn very often. I know. And that's one of the things that, you know, again, uh, the neuroscience would suggest, you know, we need to accommodate for this in some way. We obviously can't change society and make society start at 11 in the morning because 
just the workday, it doesn't work that way, and you're not going to have be able to shift all of society. But what we can think about, one way I've often explained it is, because of this going to bed a lot later, when you wake a kid up at 6 or 7 in the morning yeah. to get on a bus, that's like waking an adult up at 3 a.m., right? That's the same place in mm. the sleep process. And would you like to be, you know, hauled into work at that point? I would you wouldn't not. really, right. <laughs> it wouldn't be a great feeling. And so we risk A, chronic sleep deprivation, and B, we may want to think about what can the brain actually do when it's really trying hard to sort of wake itself up. Maybe that's not the time to start the SATs, you know, yeah. at, at seven, at eight o'clock in the morning. Maybe we're, we should postpone them until, you know, starting a little later in the morning. And actually, interestingly, this has been a lot of school districts who've now been made aware of this kind of science have actually modified their um, day, maybe start with a study hall, start with maybe a athletic part of the day or more often something that isn't a rigorous exam and then postpone when they have exams at the end of the you know season, do them later in the day. And I think kids really appreciate that. In fact, when you think about colleges, because again, I just pointed out that your brain is not you're only 18 when you're entering college, and you're only 22 generally when you're leaving college or, or thereabouts. This process isn't done yet. And you think about how popular all the evening courses and seminars are and the late mornings, that really the, it, the college environment is greatly adapted to this part of, you know, to this aspect of biology. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. People, do it. it's very often in a group of friends, one person has like the 8 a.m. course, and everybody feels very badly for them. <laughs> Yeah, right. right. So, and then to get to you, what was it? What's another thing yeah. that I think about? Yeah. Well, um, a, one thing is about uh, the emotional lability, the the emotionality of a teenager. We as adults go, what is the big deal? You know, you're you're treating this minor thing that somebody said to you, or they wore the same clothes, as like a crime against humanity. You know, international incident. What's going on? And actually, when you study the parts, what what researchers have done is they've looked at um, the parts of your brains, especially the amygdala. A part of your brain uh, in this uh, emotional part of your brain called the limbic system that controls emotion and, and also this addiction phenomenon, reward phenomena. And one of the kinds of imaging allows you to actually see what part of the brain is sort of turning on or is metabolically active during a specific task. So in this case, what they looked at was they showed kind of concerning images and wanted to see, you know, was there a bigger response that, um, of the teenage brain than the child or the adult? Mm -hmm. And several studies have now shown that absolutely yes. Uh, functional MRI, the signal lights up even more you know, significantly more, just between 15 and 25 years of age. And the children and the adults are at lower levels for a given stimulus. So, you know, really begins to show that they're really perceiving uh, that emotional stimulus. Their brain is, is reacting to it much more, and they can't, they can't control that. Right. So that is helpful to know as a parent, you know, that there is this in inherent emotional ability that, that is just part of growing up. Do you feel like um, this changed your parenting? You know, if you go back to the time before you had read a lot of this literature and really explored it, and then, you know, after, and you, you really started to absorb it and understand it, do, could you detect a difference in how you yourself acted as a parent? I, I do. I think so. I think I, I really tried to... I was single parenting at the time, so um, I didn't. I couldn't afford to have alienation, you know, of to, of my kids. Mm -hmm. I, I I wanted to understand what was going on, and I think I turned what could have been frustration and anger that we all can, 
you know, some teenage behavior will elicit this in almost everybody to more curiosity and going, okay, I, you know, there's a, there's a process behind this and I'm going to, I do have a frontal lobe and I'm going to mute my response to this. Um, I also, you know, wanted to spend, take a positive on this and really tell them, you know, what an opportunity this window still was that, you know, we'd never knew it um, before this last decade or so that that there was such a capacity to change your IQ right. in this window. What right. can you do with that piece of information? Actually, a lot. And if they're mindful of the fact that they actually have kind of a competitive edge at this point, I think it's a very hopeful thing to tell them. Um, so I, I would share this, and, and um, I think it helped. I really do. Frances Jensen is author of the book, The Teenage Brain. She's also chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. Frances, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really great to talk about this. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, danafarber.org slash beat cancer. And from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. PRI Public Radio International.